This is a Broad Pods production. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When it comes to women's rights, in many cases, the freedoms we have today are because of the persistence of lawyers who've gone before us. So how does the law protect and empower women? Well, understanding your rights is a good place to start. In this podcast, we go inside landmark cases and the laws that have redesigned society. And we'll hear from strong, smart and experienced lawyers determined to make a difference in the lives of women and girls. I'm Jo Stanley and this is Lay Down the Law. Lay Down the Law is a collaboration between Broad Radio and Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers, experience you can count on. In 2001, a security guard at Melbourne's Fertility Control Clinic was murdered. It was the catalyst for a 20-year battle to keep women safe from religious extremists that resulted in safe access zones around clinics that provide abortions. It's one of the critical ways women's reproductive autonomy in Australia has been protected. The decades-long fight for this law took many twists and turns in and out of courts and parliament and involved many people. But I'm joined by the two women who tirelessly led the campaign, Dr Susie Allenson, clinical psychologist for the Fertility Control Clinic and fierce crusader for women's health, and Lizzie O'Shea, human rights hero and principal lawyer at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Hi there, Susie and Lizzie. Hi. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. Now, Susie and Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me and for telling this very important story to me and to our listeners. Together, you've written a book that tells the tale, empowering women from murder and misogyny to high court victory. Why is it important to tell this story? Well, perhaps I'll start, Lizzie. Um, I think there are probably a number of reasons, but this is an incredible victory for women's human rights, uh, quite in contrast to what we've seen recently in America with the death of Roe versus Wade. If women don't have access to safe, affordable abortion, they really don't have much control over their lives at all. So this is, this is a really amazing victory. We don't often see such victories. Uh, and we also live in a world where women's history or her story really tends not to be told. So that was a reason I felt it was really important to get this book out there. And Lizzie? I think it's a really important story because it's about using the law as a tool of social change in a really successful way. It's got a bit of everything. It's got court cases. It's got the constitution. It's got legislative reform. uh, And in that, we've managed to secure protection for women's rights in a much more robust way. We're lucky, I think, compared to the United States. I mean, access to abortion is still definitely an ongoing 
issue that we need to advance. Uh, but from a legal perspective, we made great gains over the last two decades, thanks to people like Susie, and using the law as a tool of social change. Yeah, this conversation does take place against the backdrop of a global continuing battle for women's freedoms and reproductive rights. Currently, it's four weeks since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And, you know, the fight for women's agency and to control their fertility, of course, takes place globally. Um, In Australia, we have had decriminalised abortions in every state, although it was only 2022 when South Australia joined that particular very important, uh, you know, change of law. Um, But you're right. The reality is that there are many barriers to access abortion. It's geography, it's cost, it's still the stigma that surrounds it. And for a long time, there was abuse and harassment when entering the clinics. But now not anymore because of the safe access zones legislation that was introduced in 2016. Susie, that victory started with you in the early 90s when you began working as clinical psychologist for Melbourne's Fertility Control Clinic. So can you tell us about that clinic? What was your role there? And what kind of environment were you, you know, so committed to providing for your patients? Well, the Fertility Control Clinic was initially set up by abortion rights campaigner, Dr Bertram Weiner and his wife, Jo. They set it up in 1972. And It was a really wonderful woman-centred clinic that had every uh, service um, under one roof. So we had pathology lab, theatre, consulting rooms, all under one roof. And it was quite holistic. So yes, we provided abortion. We also provided the full range of contraception, pap tests, sexually transmitted infection testing and and treatment, and also referrals for for any psychosocial and and health issues that women had. We had a team of um, pregnancy counsellors as well. So, and I came on board as a sessional clinical psychologist uh, who would see women where perhaps their circumstances were much more complex and their decision was not clear cut. Our whole aim was to facilitate women making a decision that was right for them, whether that was to terminate a pregnancy or to continue. Uh, so I, I loved the staff, loved working with the, with the women there. It was a tremendous place inside the clinic, but outside the clinic, there were religious extremists with ghastly sort of posters and they would get in women's face and space uh, with a full litany of misinformation. So they'd be telling women that they were murderers, they'd be telling women that uh, their relationship wouldn't survive, they would get cancer. We were called a slaughterhouse um, and they would block women from actually coming in and also walk beside them, often, you know, for up to 100 metres. And staff would cop that as well. And, of course, that was distressing to women. Uh, There'd be, you know, the occasional woman who'd come in and she'd just shrugged it off. That was nothing. Their right to protest, Uh, even though I didn't see it as protest at all. It was really a shocking form of violence against women. But the majority of women were deeply offended and upset. Some were coming in with children, uh, with partners, with mums, with friends, 
and uh, we we received a lot of complaints about that. Can't you do something about this? You know, why why are they allowed to behave this way towards us out on a public street? And the impact was enormous for both your patients and the staff, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Staff tended, we all tended to be focused on the women coming into the clinic. And yes, we knew it affected us too. And certainly one of the hardest things was the anger that would come up inside and and the sense of helplessness that we couldn't do anything to protect our patients. Um, No one seemed to be concerned about this abuse of women out on a public street. Mm. It's hard to fathom that people didn't care, but you have your theories as to why that is. Oh, well, I think we're a blatantly sexist society <laughs> and, and it's the, world, you know, the world has been made by white men for white men. Um, and so a lot of people miss out there, but, but particularly women. Uh, so, yes, and Lizzie might say a bit more about that. Lizzie has a slightly more in-depth view than I do having the mind that she does. What is, what is your view, Lizzie? Oh, well, I think also there was a bit of a gap legally about who should deal with this problem. I mean, people like Susie at the Fertility Control Clinic, they're really passionate about protecting their patients and they're very stoic at putting up with the abuse they experience themselves. But there was often this attitude that it was someone else's problem to deal with that, you know, for a long time the clinic talked to various authorities asking very politely uh, in a very um, conciliatory way if they could have assistance to deal with this problem Uh, because, you know, after 2008 when abortion was decriminalised in Victoria, this is a lawful health service and it's not clear why staff and patients should have to put up with this. But there was a lot of deflection and nobody really wanted to deal with it. So that's why I'm a big fan of Susie. She decided that's something she's going to take on herself and uh, she was relentless, which is really what you have to be in these circumstances, I think. Well, it's absolutely true you were relentless. You fought for 25 very long years for safe access zones. But there was an event that really was a turning point in 2001 um, that was both tragic and very much a line in the sand for you and everyone at FCC. Um, Susie, I know that it's difficult for you to talk about it, but can you please share what what happened in 2001? Uh, Well, we've just passed the 21st anniversary of the murder of our security guard, Steve Rogers. Uh, He was uh, shot dead in the clinic reception area by an anti-choice zealot. Um, And Steve was a 44-year-old dad and son, brother. You know, he had all these people who loved him. He hadn't been with us that long, but he, he certainly... Uh, carried out his duties in a, in a very calm way. He was a lovely fellow. Made me feel safe, that's for sure. So on that morning, a, a very derelict-looking guy came into the uh, clinic and uh, Steve was about to finish up his, his time uh, on that day because the um, extremists, the usual extremists out the front usually left soon after 10. And uh, if it wasn't for Steve stepping in and also the par- two partners of women at the clinic, then the gunman would have uh, killed everybody in the, in the clinic. He had all this equipment to uh, burn the clinic to the ground. So that, that was a, a very traumatic time. 
and the clinic came together incredibly well. Uh, we really bonded and we already had an excellent bond and, and we just worked together well to get through that. There were two things that really stand out for me and that is that firstly, we went, right, that's enough. We have to go public demanding that we have safe access zones. This has just all gone far enough. And to be honest, I thought that this would be the final straw that would force the state government or Melbourne City Council to step in and protect us, protect our patients and protect staff. Well, I was pretty wrong about that. Um, the second thing that really stood out for me was that the day following the shooting, most of our patients turned up. You know, this is because the work that we do involves women facing a really urgent crisis that if you're unexpectedly pregnant or it's a problematic pregnancy, you need urgent care. And I still don't think our society has got their head around that at all. So, yep, that was the turning point, Joe. absolutely, to speak out. So the battle was very long. You took it upon yourself, Susie, which... I'm going to dive into that in a moment as to how you even had the fortitude to do that. But it was long. It took place on different levels in a number of different areas of the law and legislation. So, Lizzie, can you give us a crash course in the breadth of this case? Yeah, this is a great case study for anyone who's interested in the law, actually, because it's got a bit of everything. I mean, it started, obviously, with the murder of Steve in 2001. In 2008, we had a process of decriminalising abortion in Victoria, a very open process through the Victorian Parliament. But I think it's fair to say that Susie and the clinic knew that decriminalisation wouldn't be enough, that we also needed safe access zones around clinics to protect staff and patients from harassment by anti-abortion fanatics. Uh, and so Susie worked with me and some other lawyers from the Human Rights Law Centre to bring a case. and. The claim was that the harassment out the front of the clinic was a form of nuisance that the Melbourne City Council had a responsibility to remedy. And so we took that to the Supreme Court and we said, you need to do something about this. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court didn't agree with us. So our first step was a loss. The Supreme Court said no duty there. But what that really paved the way for was legal reform, because what that meant was that the clinic had pursued every possible option, including a Supreme Court case. And really what we needed was legislative change. Fiona Patton had just been elected uh, to Parliament. She introduced a private members bill to create safe access zones. And eventually the major parties got on board as well, and that was passed. But then, of course, the final twist in the story is that the anti-abortion fanatics couldn't let that lie. They challenged that law and they said it was incompatible with the Constitution and the implied right of freedom of political communication. That went all the way to the High Court uh, and the outcome there was fantastic. The High Court acknowledged that this was about women's rights, about the right to seek health care, uh, but also about the harm caused by this kind of activity, this um, harassment. And they found that the law was not incompatible with the Constitution, that it was perfectly valid to put in place this burden on people uh, because women had a right there to, to seek health care. So it was an endorsement of what we'd been saying the whole time, that this was about health care, this was about women's rights, it wasn't about protest, and it wasn't incompatible with a democratic society to introduce safe access zones that prohibited certain kinds of conduct around a clinic. So a great outcome legally for the clinic and also for abortion providers all across the country. And it absolutely indicates one of the other turning points of this particular fight, this multiple decades long fight of yours, Susie, which was the turning point that was Morris Blackburn and Lizzie coming on board. Um, 
you joined the fight, uh, Lizzie, and um, Susie speaks so highly of the work that you did. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment when you started working with Lizzie, Susie, and what it meant to you to have someone such as Lizzie in your corner? Well, it was quite unbelievable, actually, because, I mean, over the years, I'd contacted all sorts of people. I'd contacted lawyers, academics, women's groups, I'd, and um, especially with the lawyering fraternity, you know, their, their viewpoint just didn't understand women's experience, um, like so much else in our society still. And our medical director, Louis Rutman, had, uh, you know, got other legal advice from top-notch QCs and lawyers and um, and they just didn't see that this, this was harmful. They said, oh, well, you know, just looks like some old people out there just, I don't know what they thought was going on. But, but no one bothered to say, well, how are women experiencing this? It was like they accepted what the extremists were saying, oh, we're there to help women, we're there to counsel women, counselling on, on a public street without anybody, you know, saying, yes, I'd like to be counselled. I mean, it was just rubbish that people would accept that. But, but then again, they were associated with the Catholic Church, the most powerful institution in the world. So I guess that's the thing. So when, when Lizzie came on board, she totally got this situation and she's just a pocket rocket of energy and, uh, you know, huge legal brain. And so with the Human Rights Law Centre, who had come on initially and again with young lawyers that really understood this situation, were feminist in their outlook um, and were prepared to use the law in a way that perhaps was not the usual way. Um, and with our, our barristers and counsellors, we, we, we'd reached a certain point and then we couldn't find a law firm. And they tried everything and then finally Lizzie came on board. And I think when you speak, when you have a lawyer, well, Lizzie uses this thing called the holes in the Swiss cheese aligning. And, um, but what it means is that when you have values and a perspective that match, then you can really trust in the process. And uh, Lizzie was always very um, concerned to listen to any questions that we had and to deal with those questions. Anything we raised, she took on board very seriously. Legal action like this really works only when it's in partnership, I think, with a broader social movement and a set of activists who are willing to work together. So. That's kind of the other alignment of the holes in the Swiss cheese. You need to find the right legal team. You need to find activists who want to work with that legal team, but then also have a context in which people are prepared to work collaboratively to create this kind of social change with lawmakers as, as needs be. Uh, and Susie was really good at, at doing that groundwork to get us there. So the opportunity came and we were able to capitalise on it by having a great legal team in place, not just me, but lots of others that eventually got success in the High Court. And You can't really ask for more than that, I don't think. So there was obviously a huge amount of groundwork uh, before you were connected with Susie. But Lizzie, you've worked around the world for women's rights and particularly women's rights to control their fertility. What drives you? Uh, I just I just think women ought to have the right to decide what happens to their own body. And so, you know, I'm an Irish citizen as well. Um, I was involved in the campaign campaign. Um, 
and, and helped fundraise here from Australia with other Irish people to assist in the campaign to decriminalise abortion there. Uh, and I was really inspired by that success as well. It's great seeing women work together on a campaign because they are really powerful. Um, and this idea that they um, should have autonomy over their body uh, is just so central, I think, to the empowerment of women generally. I mean, if you can be told what happens with your body, then you can be told what to do politically. Uh, you can be controlled in a way that's very difficult to change. So it starts, I think, with that bodily autonomy, treating women as people in their own right that have a right to make a decision about their bodies rather than just a vessel for creating children. So it's something that's always struck me as deeply fundamental and I've loved working on these campaigns with other people in places like Ireland, in the UK as well, and also I worked with a, um, a, a reproductive rights organisation in, in the US. These are just great organisations that are full of inspiring, interesting and um, motivated women who are really keen to make change and, and really attack women's oppression at that deep fundamental level about bodily autonomy. Stay with us after this short break, the moment this critical law was passed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's true, though, that the difference came when, because of, I suppose, the progress of women in leadership in general, uh, we had more women that you were appealing to. It became less about appealing to the men who just didn't get it, as you say, Susie. Suddenly we had Fiona Patton elected as Member of Parliament in Victoria. We had more women in the High Court that you were speaking with. What kind of difference does it make to have women in the room? Oh, it, it makes all the difference in the, in the world, <laughs> all the difference in the world. And it wasn't... You know, on the High Court, there were three women. The Chief Justice was a woman, and boy, did they get this from a from a woman's perspective. Um, of course, from the legal perspective, definitely. And um, you know, there were women in media as well. If we had gone in front of the High Court, um, you know, straight after Steve was murdered or whatever, I mean, they wouldn't have got it. It would have been presented by an all-male team to an all-male, uh, probably all-male, I think, bench of justices. And in the High Court, what was absolutely spectacular was that the prosecution team out of Victoria were all women and the team for the Attorney-General, all women, uh, presenting to these seven High Court justices. Uh, but, but having women... You know, more women in the law, media, health, um, research, uh, you know, all of that is just so important. So whenever Lizzie and I are speaking to law students or speaking with other students, I'm like, you hang in there, you do your studies and you get out there and into the room. That's what, that's absolutely what we need. 
Yeah, Lizzie. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You know, my best mark at university when I was a law student was in a subject called law and sexuality, that, and I studied under Chris Walker, who ended up becoming a barrister. I ended up instructing her in this case in the Supreme Court. By the time the High Court case happened, she was the Solicitor General in Victoria, so she stood up and defended this legislative regime and said it was compatible with the Constitution, and she was right. Uh, and she's now appointed to the Court of Appeal, so she's now a judge in Victoria. And I think it does highlight that you know, women who um, are prepared to stand up for women's rights and prepared to do that advocacy and think creatively from the perspective of women in these legal settings inspire other women in the profession and also are then capable of convincing um, those who hold power of women's perspective. So it is really important. I think sometimes representation of women in positions of power can be overstated or um, perhaps uh, conceal um, the failure to make advances in other fields of life. But I also think it's actually critically important in some of these instances. It's quite clear, I think, that if this case had been brought 10, 15, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have had the same result. The fact that women are now an important part of the profession and they've always got further to go in that regard but they are there, does create the circumstances and the conditions for a different perspective to come forth in the law and to create law that better reflects uh, people's attitude in society, which I think is a good thing. Mm. And Lizzie, also, you might want to speak to how it inspires men to uh, champion women. That's true we do have great allies. Um, you know, uh, my my supervisor at Morris Blackburn, who's now the CEO of the firm, is a big advocate for women's rights. He saw immediately what was going on with this case and wanted to take it on for that reason. You know, there's been plenty of male barristers who've assisted us along the way and male lawyers in places like the Human Rights Law Centre. So it's absolutely true that we found allies along the way. Lou Rutman, the director of the clinic, gave Susie a carte blanche really to pursue this kind of reform. And I think that's to his credit. So there's lots of people in this story who've been inspired by other women working together and I I think it's just also a really good example of how women lawyers um, can often be more trusted by people bringing cases on behalf of women and Susie and I have a good bond I think partly because we're both women but we've built up this trust over time and it makes for a better lawyer-client relationship it improves the profession as a whole I think and the experience of clients as well as lawyers as well as the court system to, be, to, to work in a more functional way now that we've got better representation and more people moving through who understand women's perspective in the system, which is, yeah, a really, a really important step forward. And so eventually you won. Can you tell us what the safe access zones legislation means and what was that moment like when it eventually passed? Uh, well, safe access zones... Uh, it means that within 150 metres around abortion-providing clinics, uh, there can be no either pro- or anti-abortion um, protests or even prayer. Uh, so, and that moment when we got it, it was very early hours of the morning in Parliament House when the legislation was finally passed. And... Yes, it was such a relief. I almost didn't realise when it had actually passed. I couldn't quite believe it. But what, hap what happened was quite strange because there were anti-abortion extremists in the gallery. And so one of them started ranting and yelling in our Parliament House, which seemed just so disrespectful, saying there will be retribution on the House and whatnot. And the president 
he like he was saying where's security where's security and in the end he said something like and i think this this is in the transcript you know oh oh jesus heaven bananas what's well, get that security or something <laughs> so it was all a bit bizarre but it kind of presaged what would happen in terms of them pushing it all the way to the high court um but yes i had a little dance in the in the hallway to the dining room where we had just a, a little celebration and um then i sort of went home in the dark and and uh, the anti-abortion people were speaking to media on the steps of parliament and I ran down, down those steps just looking over my shoulder a heck of a lot actually um, mm. all the way back to the car. The safe access zone legislation did create a bubble around places that provided abortion and prohibited the conduct occurring in that space and gave police the powers to deal with it immediately without having to proceed through old forms of criminal law or old forms of tort and, and the like. So it's a specific designed legislation to create a safe access zone around the clinic and give powers to address bad behaviour. And one of the things I just wanted to mention is that I was always a bit concerned that the passages of this legislation wouldn't necessarily lead to people no longer engaging in that harassment out the front of the clinic. But Susie assures me that pretty much immediately the harassment ended, which I think is incredible. Well, this is a story that you can tell many ways. There's, you know, the fight for women's right to feel safe. Um, there's, of course, there's the incredible work done throughout the legal battle and, and the lawyer-client, this incredible trust that you have in each other, which I think is really critical. But it's also a story of activism and of that unstoppable force that is really, and you talk about it a lot in your book, Susie, it's just chipping away at a very solid brick wall day after day after day. And so how did you take on this battle, Susie? It is really an extraordinary story of resilience and and just the persistence. Thanks, Joe. I think I mentioned in the story a lot that there was sort of naivety and desperation. That's that's <laughs> they were probably my greatest assets at the time to keep going. Um Look, two, two major things there. I mean, the fact is that what was going on was harmful to women. And so it was just not right. And so something had to be done. So I felt if I didn't speak up, if the clinic didn't speak up for women, then we were colluding with a Catholic church, with a, you know, an institution and with this group that felt felt that they could abuse women in this way. And we've had too much of women being silenced. So to not mm. say anything and not try and do anything felt worse, to be honest. Um, the other thing was that really in the back of my mind, I thought that what I was doing was finding the, the person whose real job this was <laughs> and, and who really knew what to do in terms of advocacy and activism. And I guess at the end of 2010, when we found the Human Rights Law Centre and then we found Lizzie and then I thought, yes, right, now I found the people whose job it really is and who know what they're doing because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And in terms of continuing on, it was that, that sense that it was so important to speak up for women. And I mean, I gave up. Lots of times I gave up. I'd just go, that's it, you know, what's the point? But staff would really encourage me, family would encourage me, and um, I think I 
in the book I talk about, you know, being a clinical psychologist, you know a bit about stress management and you've got to practice what you preach. So I was definitely trying to practice what I preached. Well, just the other thing is that I, I do want to highlight that, you know, you make it sound like it was just all me and it was, but in, in fact, we were standing on the shoulders of, of many women before us who had fought for women's rights, for the right to the vote, for all sorts of things to help women be more visible, to have more power in society. So I just want to make sure that that point is very clear. I do think like failure is the foundation of success here though. We, you know, when I came on, we lost in the Supreme Court. It was a failure. The argument that we made wasn't accepted by the judge, Um, but we were prepared for that outcome. We planned to uh, explain it and then justify why we needed legislative reform and work with people like Fiona to introduce this legislation and from major parties who'd probably prefer not to do much about it if they can avoid it. Uh, and then build up other um, the capacity of the movement with other allies to continue this reform. So I think there's a lot of failure involved in activism, I have to say, but that, yes, that shouldn't be a signal to stop. That in fact, of course, before you succeed, you're going to have lots of um, disappointments. And the more friends you've got, the more collaborative you are, the better you are able to sustain that and use that as a building block to take it to the next level and, and use it as a, as a chance to create change rather than to give up. And so I, I'm not um, trying to discount Susie's persistence by any stretch, but I do think we all need to think about how we can cultivate that persistence because that is the foundation of success. And we've all got it in us, I think, and the, and the stronger our movements are, the more diverse they are, the greater capacity we've got to continue to be persistent and to win social reforms that can seem really distant at the outset, but then when you get there, it feels like it was always going to happen. But, um, you know, that's the point, keeping keeping up your spirits, finding inspiration from others and keeping your eye on a long-term goal uh, and that those that, that along the way those failures might seem like failures, but they can lead to success. You know, I did actually, I gained a lot from your book and your story of activism myself Susie when I was reading and and knowing that I've sort of started this very small uh, startup that I have you know grand plans of changing the media landscape in Australia and redressing the gender imbalance um, I I, I gained a lot of inspiration because it it, it, sort of similarly to you I'm only doing it because no one else was right (laughs) and I think how many movements of change have come from women going all right, then I'll do it. It'll be me. <laughs> Don't you think? I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. But, but I mean, at least you have quite a lot of skill in this area. Um, you know, you've worked in this area, in the media for a long time, whereas I hadn't really worked as an advocate apart from the way I would advocate if I was writing a report for a child at the Children's Court Clinic or having to stand up in, in court for the child, then that that was a form of advocacy. What I've learned, though, from your book is that a lot of the times it's just, um, it's, it's really things that happen by accident and conversations and connections that you aren't even really aware are going to form something meaningful down the track. I think there's a lot of that that women are very good at, particularly women who do things they're not qualified for because uh, don't we all do that? <laughs> don't we all just go, I, I don't know how to do it, but I just do it, right? Um, I think too, though, and knowing that there are women in other parts of the world, particularly thinking of those fighting for women's reproductive rights in the United States, there has to be it's almost a book of instruction and great inspiration for the leaders of that movement 
Are you aware of that? It's funny you say that because I had a reasonably polished draft and Lizzie came on board and one of the first things she said to me was, look, I think at the end of every chapter we should just have a little lesson, a little summary of the lessons. And I looked at her and I said, what lessons? (laughs) We went on for so many years and I was chasing my tail. I didn't know what I was doing. But, But Lizzie was able to pull those lessons out. I couldn't see I couldn't see the forest for the trees and um, I was pretty exhausted by it all actually. So it's been wonderful for me personally because Lizzie's really helped me to feel proud of this um, and not to be quite as angry as <laughs> about how long it took for people to do the decent thing, you know. Lizzie absolutely saw that potential in what I had put together and just drew it out so beautifully. Lizzie, do you? Well, I'm, I don't want to be the person that's limited the anger that Susie has. I think anger is a very legitimate fuel for the fight for women's rights, uh, I must say. But yeah, it is, it is nice to see written down the steps that were taken and almost to, to argue that this should be a manual. Like there's, there's missteps along the way, there's errors, there's um, failures for sure. And that's part of, I think, the whole journey that we wanted to document that. And it was really clear to me when Susie had written this, it had sort of come out of her. She felt the need to document it. And then I, I, I was just working with her to say, well, look, I think this is an instructive example of a win for women that is really important. Let's get it out into the world so that it can be a template for others to use as well. Um, every campaign will be different. But there's lots of lessons to learn in in this particular story that can hopefully inspire and um, encourage others who are advocating for reform. Mm. I'm going to finish with a quote from you, Lizzie, because I think that the inspiration is very real and it's very important right now worldwide. But the other thing that I think is important to remember is this from you, Lizzie. It's not hard to think of famous men from big moments in history. We're accustomed to thinking of men as the heroes of stories. But every day in large and small ways, women are heroes. How does that feel hearing that, Susie? Oh, it's wonderful. Wonderful. And and she's spot on. You know, she was talking about you. Oh, <laughs> oh, were you? I thought you were talking about women in general. Oh, yes. But... Part of our empowering. <laughs> You're a pretty paradigm example, oh, though, Susie. <laughs> it's so, oh, it's so fun working on these campaigns. Honestly, women working together, it's a really enjoyable environment. Like I've worked in a lot of different activist campaigns and I've had the most fun and felt the most inspired when I've worked with other women. I mean, it's always got downtimes, don't get me wrong. There's always difficulties along the way, but... It's just been so exciting in each of the campaigns that I've worked on for reproductive rights to see how women understand this implicitly, get what they're fighting against, can find allies along the way and, you know, just with relentless enthusiasm, take advantage of opportunities and turn them into transformative social change. And so it's always a privilege to work with women on these kinds of movements and, and as a lawyer as well, obviously. Um, and yeah, Susie's the, the classic example of that and someone we can take inspiration from. It's quite the legacy that you have created there, Susie. People who aren't really advocates uh, become advocates because to not do something uh, seems worse. To just allow something to continue that, like our situation with women being abused, uh, it would have been worse to just sit back and not do anything. So you can become the accidental advocate, I think, like me. 
So Susie, what advice would you give then to women who might be in the middle of a campaign for change themselves? I guess one of the main ones is from my story that even if you seem to be failing, keep going. Um, But really, I think it's important to stay close to, to the people that you're fighting for or the issue that you're fighting for. And usually you will need to develop language to reframe it so that so that your issue uh, is at the centre. So words, language and stories are just so powerful. It's crucial to um, make sure that you develop that language and find those stories. Uh, the other thing, I guess, is to find and develop relationships uh, with the media with other people whose interests overlap yours. And there's no doubt that bringing a legal case, although not always the way to go, if you bring a legal case with lawyers who really understand your, your issue uh, and your, frame, your framework, then it can really get it out there. I guess the other thing is uh, be kind to yourself and and have some good stress management uh, strategies uh, because it can be a hard slog. Yes, some things can can get sorted quickly, but ours certainly didn't. Uh, so I would I would be recommending that you be kind to yourself, and if you need time to take time out, then do that. Uh, and relying on other people, getting the support that you need, or all the basics of eating well, exercise. I won't go into all that. And I guess to keep speaking up, keep speaking up, even if you might feel a bit scared about that, even if you're feeling like you're just a lone voice in the wilderness, keep speaking up so that if you're doing all these things, when the opportunities crop up, hopefully you'll be ready to take them. It's perfect advice. (laughs) (laughs) If we do all that, we'll change the world. Well, I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) Next time on Lay Down the Law, we talk superannuation. Overwhelmingly, women retire with less, often subjecting them to poverty in their senior years. But did you know there are laws that can limit the amount of super women are paid over their career? So if there are laws that need changing, there are lawyers ready to fight for that change. We talk to one such lawyer and give you all the super advice you need to better set yourself up for life after work. Thanks for listening to Lay Down the Law. Check out the other episodes in this series wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, drop us a rating while you're there. That would be super lovely of you. 